While we're waiting for our music stand, uh, I'm Bill Meyer. This is my wife, Mindy, for you who haven't met us. Uh, we preached last week. We're man, uh, members of Emmanuel and uh, preached last week and uh, are doing a follow-up sermon today. And uh, when we arrived, uh, there was, at 9 a.m., just torrents of rain. It was just unbelievable, lightning, crashing thunder. And uh, we got into the, uh, this place as quickly as we could, uh, but... Um, we did get some uh, rain on our notes, so we hope this won't be a watered-down sermon. Oh, my gosh, stop, stop, stop. I'm anyway. sorry. That was not in the notes. Okay. That was not in the notes. Right. <laughs> so, anyway, um, we love the book of Philippians. And one of the reasons for that is it's full of Christ and full of joy, joy being something much deeper than happiness. And we um, looked last week at how In Philippians 1, um, we can experience joy in the midst of adversity, even severe adversity. And this morning, we're going to look at Philippians 2 about experiencing joy in the midst of challenging relationships. So we also mentioned last week, or I mentioned last week, that I became a Christian about 50 years ago at the University of Illinois, living in my sorority. So I had come to faith in Christ through a student organization, but after being a Christian for a few months, I thought, you know, I probably should go to church. Novel idea, go to church. (laughs) So being out late Saturday night and not having a car, I decided to just go to the closest church. You know, I knew nothing about picking a church, but just went to the closest one. So I leave my sorority, and you have to understand, this is all girls. We're all 19 to 21-ish age, Chicago area, Chicago suburbs. We are clones of each other. We were all blonde, pretty much, either naturally or the help of L'Oreal, you know, we were. But I leave this environment where we're pretty much all the same, like clones of each other. I go down the street, and I walk into Twin City Bible Church, and I remember walking in and looking around and seeing, it was the 70s, so there's long hair hippies involved in the protest movement kind of people. There were the ROTC guys with the really short crew cuts. There were soybean farmers. There were professors. There were little old ladies with sensible shoes. Um, there were assorted children, very international. We had um, students from India, from China, all these different countries. And I remember looking around this group thinking, what holds this group together? What do these people possibly have in common? And then, of course, I stuck around long enough to realize it was Jesus that they had in common. But part of my journey of Christ has been getting out of my little bubble with all the people that I used to hang out with that look like me and getting to know people in a wide variety. So one of the things I love about living in Chicago is the diversity. Like even in our neighborhood, there's Ethiopians, Polish immigrants, people from Mexico. Uh, we've got a Puerto Rican guy, Koreans. It goes on. I took the dog out last night to walk the dog and just chatted it up with some people on the sidewalk that are from Eritrea. They go to a church around the corner. But I thought, how cool is that in Chicago that we have this rich diversity? It really is. And the tapestry of God's global uh, multi-ethnic church and all its diversity is just a beautiful one. And it should bring us great joy uh, to think of God's people in heaven as described in Revelation uh, chapter 7, verse 9, a great multitude to that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. We should never lose sight of that vision. It's beautiful and amazing. But we aren't in heaven yet. <laughs> and the fact is, all of these people gathered around the throne are freed from the very presence and power of sin. We have perfect relationships there with the Lord and with one another. But uh, here, right now, uh, we live on earth. And the fact is, 
Um, even though in this church, most of us are redeemed sinners, we're still sinners. And in case of our marriage, a, a spouse knows it. But anyway, um, Amen. The, fact, <laughs> the fact is uh, relationships here on earth can be very challenging. In fact, they can get downright messy. Uh, before we get into Philippians 2, uh, we had Acts 16 read for a purpose, wonderfully read, by the way, uh, because it's the story of how that church in Philippi got started. Um, and Paul's words in Philippians 2 are so much meaningful, more meaningful when we place them in their historical context, because knowing that backstory makes the verses in Philippians 2 spring to life. We're given windows of understanding. Think about Acts 16 when we get into Philippians 2. Uh, so briefly, we want to make some observations regarding Acts 16. Right. So in the beginning of Acts 16, just a few verses before what we read, there was this um, vision that Paul had. He had this vision. He heard a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. So when they get there, there's no man. There's a bunch of women, and I'm sure they were like, so where's the man? Just went ten, I took 10 men to have a synagogue in the Jewish faith, and here they just had a group of women. So I think God loves to launch things with small beginnings and unimpressive people. Who would have guessed that this little prayer group by the river would be open up the ministry to all of Europe? One of the women that was there was a woman named Lydia. And she was a dealer in purple cloth. She was an upscale businesswoman. If Lydia were in business today in Chicago, she'd be, have a really classy boutique on Michigan Avenue downtown. Only royalty and wealthy people could afford things made out of purple cloth. There were laws prohibited people from, ordinary people from wearing purple. Even today, purple denotes the color of royalty. We know that Lydia was either a widow or was single, because households are always named by the man, but they talk about Lydia's household. It, I love it. it. says, God opened her heart. She was the first convert in all of Europe. She and all her household were baptized, and then she persuaded Paul. I love that. It's a very strong verb, businesswoman. She persuaded them to come to her house. But it's beautiful. She opened her heart and then she opened her home. And we see her gift of hospitality unleashed. When Paul gets out of jail, he goes back to her house. Second person mentioned is a slave girl who had the ability to tell fortunes. She was owned and trafficked by some men who exploited her for their own profit. She apparently followed Paul around giving free but unwanted advertising. Sometimes we see around the city some people giving Christ unwanted uh, advertising. But Paul was so exasperated by her that he cast a demonic spirit out of her. And the spirit left, but so did her fortune-telling ability. Her slave owners were angry that they just lost a source of income. She then was discarded by these men. She had nothing, but nothing but Jesus. And then many commentators feel she was redeemed by God and welcomed into this Philippian church. Third person mentioned is a night shift jailer. Uh, this prison warden was probably a former soldier in his last stage of his career, a vet. And um, in this incredible passage, uh, he was about to end his life, but found life instead abundant and eternal. His entire household was saved and baptized, and he in two opened his heart and opened his home, invited Paul and Silas uh, into uh, his home, and washed their wounds. So there you have it. Philippian church at the beginning. First Christians in Europe were an upscale businesswoman. 
a slave girl who was a victim of trafficking, and a washed-up vet making a living as a night shift jailer. Now, under normal circumstances, these people would probably never have come in contact with each other. They would never have hung out on Saturday night or been part of the same friend group. But because of their newfound faith in Christ, they now are brothers and sisters in Christ. But how are these random people supposed to get along? The church met in the home of wealthy businesswoman Lydia. I can just imagine the jailer's kids coming in with muddy feet and spilling milk on Lydia's beautiful purple tablecloth. (laughs) So what can we learn from Philippians 2, from this very diverse group of people, how they manage not just to get along but become the family of God? And we're going to suggest several lessons. The first of those is that we are to draw from the wellspring of divine sources available to us by the Holy Spirit as we relate to one another. We can often not think about that. Paul starts with four ifs, but these ifs do not imply uncertainty. It says if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, a better translation would be not if, but if, as is certainly the case, these four things are true about every Christian lay a foundation on which the life of unity is built. When we take time to think of all that God has done for us, all the benefits we receive, like encouragement, comfort, fellowship, tenderness, and and compassion, it's from this place of spiritual fullness and union with a God who loves us more than we can ever dare hope. We're able to be to each other what God in Christ has been to each of us, and this becomes the springboard for Christian unity, we're to draw deeply from this wellspring that the Holy Spirit has placed in us. The second lesson we can learn is this. Concentrate on what you have in common rather than dwelling on differences. Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit. What does it mean to be like-minded? It does not mean uniformity, that everyone has to think the same thoughts or have the same ideas. It does not mean we all like Rocky Road ice cream or that we have the same music loaded onto our devices. doesn't mean that we all have to be five-point Calvinists. Some of us are just not predestined to think that way. (laughs) Is is that true? Okay, Father. (laughs) Uh, Instead, being like-minded is agreeing on the essentials of the faith, the fact that God has revealed himself in Christ that we are all broken and sinful people, yet have been redeemed by his grace. It's having a peacemaking spirit that wants to seek harmony in relationships by serving one another, uh, by having an attitude of humility. It says having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. Neat word, in full accord. It's the Greek word simpsikoi, and it's uh, a combination word, sim, uh, together, psychoi, in soul, Soul brothers and sisters, if you will, knit together by the Holy Spirit who makes you one. And we are to be united in the purpose of bringing glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that um, over the years has grieved me most is to see unnecessary splits in the body of Christ. It just grieves my soul. Um, God called me 28 uh, years ago to come back to the church where I'd wandered into to become a Christian and um, where I found the Lord. And it had gone through a terrible time, been without a pastor, a lead pastor for two years. And um, 
all hell had broken loose in that church. But God led me to come back there, and I got to see him work a miracle in that church for the next 16 years, slowly but surely, uh, growing that church in unity, uh, growing it in numbers, but that was a byproduct of the unity. And um, after I finished that time and came up to Chicago to another church, I passed the baton to a wonderful associate pastor whom I dearly love uh, to this day. And he went along for another 10 years. And then Twin City Bible Church in Urbana experienced the same thing, same thing before I'd come there. And my beloved friend was just um, raked over the coals, believe it or not, worship kinds of issues, not doctrinal issues, worship kind of issues were once again splitting that church and coming back to this concentrate on what you have in common rather than dwelling on differences. And Paul is saying this to the Philippians. We need to see what's going on here in this church. So a third lesson I think we can learn is this. Relate to others with humility rather than from a position of superiority. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Oftentimes, if you look at some of these tensions in churches, it can be egos warring against each other or selfishness. And, you know, just this week I was with my colleagues. I had hosted them at my home. These are all the national leaders for Greek University. And I found myself getting sort of agitated with one of my colleagues. And I'm like, why, why am I getting hot under the collar? What's, what's going on that I'm getting upset with this guy? And then I realized that he and I had worked on a project, and I felt like he was taking too much credit, that I wanted more glory. And I'm like, really? I've been a Christian 50 years, and I'm dealing with this? My ego is scraping up against him? And I'm like, Lord, have mercy. The text we're studying and preaching on, and I'm not even living it out. But I thought, how easy is it for our own ego, our own pride, to scrape against somebody. And I just had to back up and say, Lord, have mercy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think this text is saying to consider others more than significant than yourselves is not a doormat verse. It's not saying, I'm no good. I can't do anything well. Rather, it's a conscious choice to treat other people with extreme preferential treatment and extreme respect. Can you see how the church in Philippi might have had a little trouble with this when you think of Lydia, the upscale businesswoman, the jailer, and then the slave girl? I'm sure they had a hard time pulling this off. Yeah, big differences, whoop, in status, income, all of this stuff. And humility is key here, something that was emphasized in the book of James that was preached um, recently. Uh, Humility is is that grace uh, that when you know you have it, uh, you've lost it. Uh, Immediately suspicious of the individual who shares that he wants to thank God for how much he's grown in humility the past year. Kind of like, I don't know if it was Rick Warren or somebody else, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Um, It does mean that we become more aware of our own foibles and failings, more accepting of those of others, more self-aware. We realize our personalities have a shadow side. It also means that we grow in our appreciation of the gifts and graces in the character of others. A couple weeks ago... um, I was with Mindy, not often shopping, but this time I was. It was and, a miracle. He went shopping okay. with <laughs> And she was trying on jeans at the Gap. And um, go ahead. I don't know where this is going. Where is this going? <laughs> well, you, I said, you were the, trying on jeans. Do these yes. jeans make me look fat? And you said. I, and I said, um, 
frankly, skinny jeans are really, really popular among many people right now. Oh, oh, oh I missed the... I'm an, I'm an F, she's a T. So, so the, yeah, the backstory to this that. is he's an F on the Myers-Briggs. I'm a T. So if you want a really feel-good answer, you ask Bill. So our kids have said that. If you want a really feel-good answer, you ask Dad. One of our kids said... If you want a really honest answer, you want honest feedback, ask mom because she has an opinion on everything. <laughs> but we've learned even through the Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs mm-hmm. to understand we're different, but we appreciate our differences. We're better together than alone, I think. I think. Works well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then in verse 4, another lesson we can learn is be other-centered rather than self-centered. It says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others because Self-centered, it is kind of a bent that we have. Um, it's assumed that we'll look out for our own interests. That comes naturally, and we'd be irresponsible not to do that. But Paul says, don't stop there. Look out for the interests of each other. Our culture says, look out for number one. Christ says, look out for each other and the needs of the world around you. Greek word, again, is scopane. It means a keen outlook for the welfare of another person. In other words, scoping out in a caring and concerned way. What's going on in the lives of people around you? You're called to take a keen interest in seeing each other, develop your spiritual gifts, keen interest in the needs of others. Where does this person fit at Emmanuel, for example? And I would even say to fellow husbands uh, here this morning, spiritual servant leadership in the home is seeking to help your wives and your children become all that they can be in Christ helping them discover their gifts, helping them to find their way throughout life. It's interesting, toward the end of this chapter, Paul holds up Timothy as an example. Same phrase. He says, I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Wow, what a statement. But it's interesting how Paul is an example of getting it right Mm -hmm. at the end. Mm -hmm. This idea of looking out for the interests of others is why Emmanuel Anglican Church has things like refugee ministry. Recently, we were asked to collect items um, for people in need who were setting up households coming from other parts of the world. Social action and um, social justice are grounded in this idea. Remember at Christmas, we had an opportunity to put this into practice when we took up an offering and were concerned about not just ourselves and our Christmas, but other people as well. It's a beautiful thing. Charles Swindoll says being unselfish and other-centered in our attitude strikes at the very core of our being. It means we're willing to forego our own comfort, our own preferences, our own schedule, our own desires for another's benefit, and that brings us back to Christ. And the next point is the most important here, um, is emulating the example of Jesus. Your attitude, your mind, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And we're now given a close-up close, close up look at Christ as our role model. Alec Moitier made the statement, the story of the cross of Christ is told in each of the four Gospels. The meaning of the cross is the preoccupying theme of the epistles. But the present passage uniquely unfolds the cross as seen through the eyes of the crucified and allows us to enter into the mind of Christ. We tread, therefore, on holy ground indeed. We do well to remember that this privilege is given to us not to satisfy our curiosity, but to reform our lives. And what follows is one of the greatest Christological passages in the whole New Testament, and 
It was a hymn in the early church. So Paul goes on to unpack now what, it, what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? The first thing I think we can note is that this action was voluntary. No one forced Christ to do this. He chose this course of action on his own free will. For decades, the Jewish people had sacrificed animals to atone for sin, but these animals cast no vote. They never gave consent. They were just taken and they were slaughtered. But Jesus, the final perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, willingly gave himself as a sacrifice. He also gave up status rather than grasping for power. Although he was fully God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, to be clutched onto and held onto at all costs. He was willing to lay aside his divine prerogatives and become a man, a human being. Jesus was willing to leave the beauty and the perfection of heaven and come down, down, down into our sin-torn world. He took on the nature of a servant. It's interesting. We're told upward mobility. We should all climb the ladder up. Jesus shows us downward mobility. He climbed the ladder down. He emptied himself. He even washed the disciples' feet. And he's speaking this truth to the Philippian church, but also to us. He humbled himself rather than exalted himself. The king of kings takes on the very nature of a servant. The son of God, praised and adored by the heavenly hosts, becomes man and was rejected, spit upon, beaten beyond recognition, and treated as a common criminal. He sacrificed himself for others rather than serving his own self-interests. When I went to Israel, had one trip there, um, I, I, I don't weep easily. I'm kind of inhibited with my emotions. But when I went to the Garden of Gethsemane, I wept, where he said, Father, if he possible, he was the very essence of life, tasted death that we might have life. This self-denial goes as far as death. He went from the highest height, being fully God, seated in the heaven, to the lowest low, death on the cross. To die on the cross was to submit himself to the most humiliating of deaths, reserved in Roman rule for criminals. Since death by crucifixion is not part of our culture, it's really hard for us to wrap our mind around how horrific and shameful this death was. Through artistic renditions of the cross, we see the cross now as a symbol of love and of beauty and of sacrifice, which it is. But we must not lose hold of the fact that Jesus underwent a shameful execution in the cross. Motier again, love him, <laughs> says, it's my last quote from him, but anyway. His are the eternal glories, both by nature and by right, but they're not a platform for self-display, nor a launching pad for self-advancement, therefore self-denial and self-sacrifice. This was the mind of Christ. He looked at himself, at his Father and at us, and for obedience' sake and for sinners' sake, he held nothing back. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The text goes on to say, therefore he alone is exalted and worthy of our praise and adoration. As Bill said, he goes from the highest height to the lowest. There's this downward descent. But then a great reversal happens. Then the ascension of Christ is spoken of. It says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that at every at the name every Jesus, I'm sorry, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. We're told that there's coming a day 
when all people will bow the knee, all people will know that Jesus is Lord. They may do that willingly or unwillingly, but they will submit. All will confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord. This doesn't mean that everyone will be saved, but it does mean that they will bow the knee to Jesus. His appearing will only confirm the choice that they have made. This past Friday night, we went to Millennium Park for the last free concert of the season. Um, We went with a dear friend who's staying with us, and um, it was Gustav Mahler's Resurrection Symphony, Symphony No. 2. It was a feast, 80 minutes, five movements. Um, I've learned to use the restroom before a Mahler (laughs) symphony. But um, but it's, it's so interesting. It begins with death, and there's a steady progression, some of the struggles that we go through with dealing with death, but then it moves, movement by movement, uh, towards life. And all of a sudden, these beautiful, the soprano and the mezzo-soprano come in, speaking, of, speaking really of heaven and what's out there. And then in the final movement, uh, the chorus comes in. They've been sitting there all the time. They come in in this great crescendo, and it's just one of the most moving experiences uh, you can have. And yet, what was empty in the words and everything was no mention of Jesus. So I had to make that translation in my mind, but it was just a foretaste of, how, of God exalting him to the highest place. And this victory where he conquered death is ours as well. So Jesus is held up as a role model. We're called to emulate him. The idea is to self-empty, humility, service. And this is a mindset. It's an ongoing attitude. It's not doing one good deed for the day and then checking that off your to-do list. It's rather a posture or a way that we relate to each other. It's an attitude that helps us to bridge with people really different from ourselves. I was thinking about the application of humility and sacrifice, and I honestly thought of Bill, who has, in our 48 years of marriage, washed the dishes every day. He washes all the dishes at our house, which is amazing. That's such a sacrifice. And well, it also... I'm. Bit OCD, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't know the dishwasher right, and I'm okay with that. I actually love doing dishes, but anyway, yeah. believe it or not. But, um, but you've done countless things yes. uh, for me as well. But, you know, one of the ways we really wanted to teach this theology to our children, we have four, have four children, and one of the ways we did that was by having them do chores. We would have them clean a bathroom when they were in first grade once a week. In fifth grade, they made dinner one night a week. I mean, I had a whole chore. Everyone was doing chores. I would say to them, you all benefit from the community. You all serve the community. But this was an important thing (laughs) for them to learn how to be a servant to each other and wash toilets and make, you know, do all the chores around the house. We actually were motivated by an article we read where they surveyed highly successful people. And when they looked at these people, they had a diversity of race a diversity of educational background, diversity of income. They're like, what's the common denominator? One thing, chores. These kids, they did chores as children. So this is my unofficial, you know, plug advertisement for this. But the importance of chores. If parents want the article. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll talk to parents later if you want any more on this. But I, I think it's important that kids learn how to do that and that we learn how to serve each other. It's often taught at home. Yeah. Then another lesson we can have after this glorious passage All of a sudden, this verse comes in, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I think what's happening here, um, the verse is often wrenched from its context, um, but the fact is, uh, God uses relationships to sanctify us. This is what the whole context is. 
continue to work out your own soul with uh, your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But often relationships is we see what we really need to work on um, in, in these contexts. One of our grandsons has this rock tumbler. It looks kind of like a baby dryer. You put jagged stones in it, and you turn it on, and it tumbles and tumbles and tumbles, and the rocks hit against each other. You leave it in there for hours, even weeks, and when you emerge, you open the door, and the rocks emerge. They're very smooth because they've been bumping up against each other, and I often think like in marriage, our rough edges scrape up against each other, but marriage and relationships, communal living is a rock tumbler. Our rough edges scrape up against each other, but then we become smooth over time. Well, there's still a few jagged edges. Yeah, but but that's okay. Yeah, that's right. We're (laughs) still in the rock tumbler. We're still in the rock tumbler. We're still in the rock tumbler. Um, So it says work out your own salvation. Um, Although salvation, as we talked about last week, um, is, is God's work from first to last. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Um, this does not mean, though, that we're not actively involved. I mean, this does not mean that we're not actively involved in our own spiritual growth, um, that we can passively look uh, at our ticket to heaven and say, I'm good. Um, what, what it's talking about is the fact that there is, um, uh, that we are at work in our salvation. I'm preaching to the choir since you're very into spiritual disciplines. We do have something to do. It's a, it's a both end. It doesn't teach that, that we can earn our salvation with our part or that we need to fear that we can lose our salvation, but it does speak of our active growth, role in spiritual growth. Just an example that I would give. I've had uh, the joy over the years, not right now, but of helping men, very common issue, and that's working through pornographic addiction. And um, God has done some powerful things to release men from a prison. But they had to make choices to deal with this. Um, they needed to find that their yearnings uh, could only be met in intimacy with Jesus, take practical steps, accountability group, installing covenant eyes, things like this. But um, that's, that's part of this. God's at work within them, but they also are working on some stuff themselves. Finally, Realize that God wants our lives and relationships to shine like stars in a dark world. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. This was happening with the Philippians. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Beautiful metaphor. We actually had that verse and a calligraphy in our kitchen at home. We, wanted, we chose this. This is the life verse we chose for our children, to do everything without grumbling and complaining and shining like stars. I love that. But one little trick I have, too, is to shift in my perspective. I remember looking at literally a mountain of laundry. We had four children, you know, so lots of laundry. Anyway, I remember looking at a mountain of laundry, wanting to grumble, and then being like, no, thank God I have children. All this laundry is evidence that I have children. And we're blessed to have so many clothes. And like this stinky soccer uniform, this stinky baseball uniform is evidence of the fact that my kids are healthy enough to participate in sports. Thank you, God, for that. Like when Bill snores. Here's my trick with snoring. I say, I'm blessed to have a husband. And you know what? He's not blowing through our money at a casino. He's right here next to me in bed with me. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Now a CPAP machine has saved our marriage. Yes, yeah. It does help. It does help. It says shine like stars 
in the universe as you hold out the word of life. As we emulate Christ, choose to humbly serve one another, seek holiness in our lives as we refrain from complaining and arguing, the text says we will shine like stars in the universe. In a twisted generation, the light of our life will be in contrast with all that is dark around us. We really reflect the light of Jesus, the light of the world. I was just thinking, if we applied this text of having humility, serving other people, not grumbling, imagine what it would be like in your workplace, your neighborhood, your friend group, if you actually live this out. Like, I think it would be, we would, we would stand out like stars in the universe. It's, it's so beautiful to think of putting this in practice. So we end this sermon. What's God's invitation to you? We really believe that God speaks through his word, and we've put a lot in here because Philippians 2 is just packed uh, with things that we can take to heart. Is there one place you feel that you need God's transformation? Cannot do this in our own human strength. We need God to form Christ within us. Just going to give you a chance to meditate a bit on that, and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for working in my life and Mindy's life through this passage. And I pray for each person here that you would do your work by your spirit um, in what, the way that you want to in their lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.